This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of a Week. So, Clark, who have we got on the show tonight? Well, we've taken a different slant on it this week by getting on a former PE teacher and Scotland football manager, Craig Brown. We're going to get his thoughts on education and when he was a PE teacher back in the 80s and how the skills he developed whilst teaching stood him in good stead when he was given the opportunity to become a football manager and coach at various clubs in Scotland and also leading the international team to their first um, Euros in a good few years in 1996 and then following up by that by also qualifying for the World Cup in France in 1998. So looking ahead to the Euros coming up in a few weeks, um, we're really looking forward to getting his thoughts on how he managed to steer Scotland to a major competition and something we've not done for you know over 20 years. So looking forward to talking football and talking teaching. So let's get started. Right, fantastic. Uh, welcome to a wee bit of everything, Craig. It's great to have you on uh, the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Clark. Happy to be with you. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on. We're both passionate about football and uh, teaching and I'm sure you've done a wee bit of both over your career. So we've just... We've went through and noted your introduction there and um, all the stuff you've done. Uh, but could you maybe give us a, a brief rundown on your kind of professional career as you see it, Craig? Uh, you want my football career and or teaching as well? Uh, a bit of both. I'll give you a bit of both. I'll give you, I'll give you the football first because I thought that would maybe what you wanted. Yep. Uh, I'm quite fortunate in that uh, I was a good boy player. I think I was a better youth player than I was a senior player. But uh, I played for three teams in Scotland. I managed three teams in Scotland and I worked for three teams in England. So I was involved in nine football clubs and I was with the SFA for 15 years, seven as the assistant manager and eight as the manager. Uh, That's the sort of football history. Mm -hmm. Uh, In teaching, I was at Jordan Hill and did the PE course there. And I'll tell you an interesting thing you're not like if you're a PE teacher. Right. I, was teaching P- P- e. I was teaching PE in Dundee and I was playing for Dundee Football Club and they were a very good team at the time. We actually won the Scottish Championship mm-hmm. and get into the semi-final in Europe. But uh, So I taught every afternoon. I was a peripatetic teacher. I was doing a half a day here and half a day there because in the afternoon we didn't usually train in those right. days. We did train in the morning. So then the director of education called me in. He says to me, 
said, why are you teaching in the afternoons? I said, well, there are other boys there in the bookies or there playing snooker, the other players, and I've got a qualification that's given me something to do. He says, hey, do you know what they call the PE teacher? Wait, you hear this? I says, no, in the schools. They call the PE teacher the ignorant acrobat. That's what he says. Do you want to be an ignorant acrobat all your days? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, why don't you spend the afternoon trying to get uh, academic respectability? That I mean, well, I fought him like mad. I said, look, to get into the job hill, to get into the PE course is far more stringent than to get into university. Because not only have you to have university attestation of fitness in terms of your hires, mm. you, have to go th- you have to go through a, an interview and you have to go through an aptitude test, a physical test in the gym. They throw balls at you, you have to catch them. <laughs> you get hand-eye coordination, you have to do a, you know, a handstand or hand on your hand. I said, it's far more difficult to become a PE teacher than a class teacher. And he, he was a bit taken aback by that. I said, I'm telling you. So you're telling me, but he says, look, if you want your career, do you want to be standing in a gym when you're in your 50s, 60s? And I, I mean, he made me think. And just at that point, the Open University started up. Mm-hmm. And he said, we'll put you through the university uh, if you work for us for three years when you, when you graduate. So instead of, well, I did, I kept teaching PE, but I did the university as well. And it was a nightmare time-wise because I'd up at six in the morning to look at, to uh, listen to radio and look at television slots for the Open University. So uh, I took a degree as well. And that enabled me, when I went part-time football, eventually to go full-time teaching. So that, that was, my teaching was together, combined with football initially, but then later on I was a full-time teacher and a part-time footballer with Falkirk. Right. So it worked out well for me in, in, did, in terms of sharing the jobs. Did you have to do a dance routine for your, your teaching post? Because that, me and Clark certainly did. Yes, that was, yes. I, think, I think that was the worst part about the, the interview. Uh, that, I, uh, think I think that's what makes it, that on its own makes it the well, most difficult one. Well, it wasn't too much of a dance routine, but I remember we had to do this. We had to pass the Scottish country dance uh, qualification. All right. We had to teach. We we had to be examined teaching dancing. We had to teach, and of course you're teaching. It was all male. The PE course I was on, you know. So you're teaching uh, your your own class. So one of the guys is a female. <laughs> you know, they're, they're So, uh, and you're, if you're unlucky, you're playing the part of the, the female dancer. But uh, the Scottish country dance, uh, I remember Miss, oh, I can't remember, a very, very powerful lady. She came and examined us teaching Scottish country dancing. And that was the hardest uh, session we had. To, to, you had to learn 24 dances. You couldn't look at the book to see what the dance was. You had to know the dance in here. Mm-hmm. And she would just give you the name of Hamilton House, teach Hamilton House, or you know, whatever dance. Uh, she, uh, she named you to go and teach it. So, uh, anyway, I, was joy. I, I loved the PE course. I loved the, I found the Open University great. If I had nothing else to do, it would have been terrific because the quality of the, the learning material is terrific. But the demands on you were, because I had two other jobs, I was, I was teaching, I was a part-time football coach and I was doing the Open University. But, I managed to do that in three years and get the qualification. So, right. uh, that, sounds, 
that's been that's been only downside this year. Not been able to do the, the Scottish country dancing because of COVID. So you can't you can't you can't enjoy you can't enjoy you can't enjoy it. I've missed it. I've missed it. It's good. It's good fun though, isn't it? Like it's it's. I think it, once they get going in that, it creates a good atmosphere in that about the. Well, they had they had a program on television called the White Heather Club, mm-hmm. and they had another one called Jig Time. STV was Jig Time. BBC was White Heather Club, mm-hmm. and the girls in that program were professional dancers. And they phoned up to Jordan Hill College, the PEs, the Scottish School of PE, for guys to go down for an audition to be to be in this uh, television program they had on weekly. So uh, a lot of us went down there, you know, quite a number. And they only needed eight guys each week when we went down. And uh, I didn't get the way the, I got, didn't get into the, the group. Now they were well paid at that time. It was incredible they had to join Equity, the Actors Union. And then when STV started one. The guys that didn't get into the BBC team, they were getting a bit desperate. So they went for an audition. And I managed actually to get into the STV one jig time. So I danced on the television with a kilt. Well, you must be good then. <laughs> and we got, we got eight guineas. That was <clears throat> every Sunday we went and recorded the programme every Sunday. And, and the equity ones in BBC get 27 guineas. So they got... Uh, Three and a half times what we got for the dancing. But anyway, that's not relevant to this program. Brilliant. No, no, that, that was good. That was good information. Um, Lewis, I'm sure Lewis would still. I'm sure Lewis would apply for it if it was still running. Hundred, <laughs> hundred percent, man. I've got my kilt looked at the now. Get it looked at. <laughs> absolutely. Aye, get that for the euros and all. It's not only the euros. The kilt, the kilt will need to get looked at shortly anyway. So, um, see when you were working with the national team, can you just take you back a bit when you're speaking about being an assistant manager? Um, who were you an assistant to? Well, I was assistant to Andy Roxbury. First of all, Alec Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you know, when I left teaching, it was because of a phone call from he wasn't Sir Alec then; he was the Aberdeen manager. Right. <clears throat> and I, I was I was lecturing in the College of Education, and I was lecturing in education at Craigie College of Education. And at lunchtime, the secretary came along from the office said, "You have to phone a man at lunchtime." And I said, who, what, who is it? Uh, she said, it's Mr. Ferguson. And I thought, this is Ali McCoy swinging me up. <laughs> because Jock Steen was the Scotland manager and Jock had died, sadly. Mm-hmm. And they had qualified for the World Cup finals in Mexico in 1986. Mm-hmm. So Alec Ferguson was the Aberdeen manager. They asked him to take the job temporarily. So Alec was Scotland manager. So when I got the number, it was an Aberdeen number, so I phoned. And this was a conversation. Whenever I phoned the number, I recognised his voice right away. And of course, I'd played with him in the Scottish youth team. So he says, hey, Brun, you know, very respectful. Brun, I said, yeah. He says, hey, you know, I've got this job. I have to take the team to Mexico. I said, yeah. He says, I'm getting my staff put together. I would like you to join the staff. He says, well, I'm working. I'm not full-time football. He says, ask for a month's unpaid leave of absence. And hopefully they'll let you off and come. So that... So what I did, I was at the College of Education, I asked, and they put it to the Board of Governors. And unbelievably, they gave me a month's paid leave of absence wow. to go to Mexico with a Scottish team. Then Alec came away with a cracking phrase. He said, we've got three games to play over there in the World Cup. Uh-huh. But we won't let that interfere with enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll enjoy the game. I'm taking, taking three coaches. So he took Walter Smith, Archie Knox, and myself. Now, it's an old pal, 
Ah, it's an old Palzac football. So we were all friendly uh, because we had been in the coaching courses at Lars together and I had played in the Scottish under-18 team with Alec and I knew him quite well. So, uh, But I was privileged to go. So when I come back from Mexico, Andy Roxburgh got the job. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, Alec Ferguson mm-hmm. didn't want the Scotland job. Did he go to... Did he go... Did he stay at Aberdeen or did he go to... Stayed at Aberdeen, Aberdeen until Aberdeen. we came back from the World Cup in the end of June. We stayed at Aberdeen by the middle of September. Manchester United were doing poorly, 1986. And uh, I think they say Gordon Strachan recommended him to the chairman, yeah. uh, to Manchester United. So he went down to Manchester United from 1986. At that same time, he refused Scotland. And Andy Roxbury got the job, and I got the job of uh, the under-21 team and assistant with the national team. So you said, who was assistant? It was a long answer. I was <laughs> assistant to, Andy, right. to Alec Ferguson first, then to Andy Roxburgh. So and then my first club job, I was assistant to the most knowledgeable football family in Scotland, in my experience, talking about the whole family, is the McLean brothers. Right, there were yeah. three of them. There was Willie McLean, Jim McLean, and Tommy McLean. And there, Ashgill, uh, you should know that, uh, you uh, guys. Yes, they were Ashgill. And uh, I think if, if you want to have a football family that's knowledgeable, now I think it might be the Ferguson family, you know, with the uh, 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 Ferguson brothers, Barry and his Barry. brother Derek. Uh, Derek, and, what, and Derek's very knowledgeable, wasn't he? He's constantly watching right. football. And then they've got the son, Lewis. So that's a football family from the yeah. same neck of the woods. But the, the, the McLean family steeped in football. Their father was a good player. Uh, he was called Speeder McLean, because you can tell why he could fly, he was a winger. And <laughs> they all were, all were very good managers. So I got a lucky call from Willie McLean, who was the mother manager. Uh, he followed Ian St. John, who was the manager. He went away to Portsmouth. And Willie phoned me with a come as his assistant to Motherwell. And I learned an awful lot from uh, Willie McLean. Obviously, I learned a lot from Alec Ferguson too. Because right. I think Alec Ferguson's the best football manager on the planet mm-hmm. that there's been. <laughs> and yeah. likely to be. Because That's how he speaks for I itself. I don't see else winning 13 championships in England and getting 36 yeah. trophies. consistency as well. He's staying there for 25 years. It's incredible. Uh, for that, that amount of time. One club. Uh, he's, uh, Alec's the man. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I was privileged to work with them on the Scotland team. And, uh, right, right. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on one of the tournaments in the next kind of couple of questions. So thanks for sharing that uh, your career there. Craig. A, a good insight into your your teaching career there, Craig. Thanks very much. Right. So my question for you then is that I'm sure you'll agree that teaching and coaching have got a lot of crossovers and similarities. Do you feel that your teaching career helped you become a better coach? Well, I think football coaching is just teaching. It's yeah. teaching football. Mm. And there have been some very good... I think Mourinho was a teacher. You know, well, he's in, in the news at the moment. <laughs> and it's, it's not the best right. of news. But, yeah. but, you know, there have been one or two excellent... Uh, you know, the, the, the manager that... When England won the World Cup in 1966, mm-hmm. they had gone 19 games unbeaten and Scotland went down to Wembley and beat them. And the, the goals that everybody knows, the goals were scored with Dennis Law, Bobby Lennox and Jim McCallion, but the manager was a teacher, right. PE teacher called Bobby Brown, and 
So Bobby Brown excelled as a goalkeeper for Rangers and Queen's Park before that and then Rangers then excelled as the St. Johnson manager and the Scotland manager. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there's a big similarity between teaching a, a class and teach. People used to say to me, a football team's like primary, like teaching primary seven. <laughs> I said, well, that's a bit harsh. But, <laughs> you know, you, there are similarities in dealing with them. You know, you've got to deal with them firmly and fairly. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's uh, Gus Hiddink, the old famous Dutch manager, called it tough love. Yep. Tough mm-hmm. love is the answer with players. They've got to know that you love them. Mm-hmm. But they can't get away. They mistake kindness for softness. A footballer, and you know, same at school, kids mistake kindness for softness. Mm-hmm. And if they're too kind to them, they think, this is a soft touch we've got here. Yeah. We'll have him on. Now, that's the same with football. And uh, So there's great similarities. You know, I, I genuinely feel like a good teacher walks into a classroom or if you're in the PE teacher, walk into the changing room and they, they stop talking and they wait to hear if you've got anything to say, right? Same, a good teacher walks into the classroom, doesn't have to say shut up or sit down. They do it automatically. Mm-hmm. A good manager walks into the dressing room. This is a match day and they just, they listen, they just sit down automatically and the respect is there. And, you know, I think, you know, a football manager has got uh, far more control of a football team than any manager elsewhere, even in the school head, than the school head teacher or the manager of a factory, the manager of a, a bank, the bank manager. Why has the football manager got more power? Two reasons. One, he pays them. Now, that's the same as the other manager. Yeah. The biggest power he's got is the power of selection. Ah, every, okay. player, every player there wants to be picked. Mm-hmm. And you're selecting them once a week, twice a week. So if you've got that amount of power over them, you've got great control over a team. And you can only lose that power in two ways. One, by being incompetent. Mm-hmm. And two, by being dishonest. If you tell a player a lie, you're finished. Mm-hmm. Even, even a simple thing like, I'll play you next Saturday. I, don't, I yeah. didn't play you this week. I'll play you next week. Now, if you say that and you don't do it, you're lost. You've lost the dressing room right away. They just uh-huh. say this. You can't trust this guy. So it's the same in teaching, isn't it? Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. Exactly what I was going to say. You were going to say what? Either it's the exact same in teaching. If you say you're going to do something, you need to carry through. I think because they'll, remem- they'll remember it. it. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a good good tip that I got from my head teachers. Uh, one of the, I think it was, it was when I was a student actually in the Academy. I was in in the head. The, the head teacher in that school at the time, his name was W.C. Henderson. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what his nickname was? W.C. Henderson, Flush. <laughs> Flush. <laughs> the kids call him Flush. Anyway, but Flush was a brilliant head teacher, W.C. Henderson. And you know that he's a rule, and it would be interesting if you wanted to try it in your school. If, I mean, if, if I give you no, nothing tonight except here's a wee idea mm-hmm. that no kid goes into your dressing room without looking you in the eye at the door. That means, of course, you've got to be at the door as they come in. Yeah. Now, the same with a classroom. This head teacher, Flush, had the rule that every teacher had to stand at the door of our classroom or his classroom, and as the kids came in, they looked you in the eye. And that was, immediate, that was control. That was contact, immediately mm. established. Now, if a kid went past you and didn't look you in the eye, I would say, Lewis, back out and come in properly. 
and coming in properly was you look the head teacher in the eye. Now I feel the same in the you, you don't have to be at the door of the dressing room as they arrive for the game. But I think you've got to look them in the eye as they get out to play. As they leave the dressing room, you're standing at the door there. And you say you say to them, I expect you to look me in the eye and, and commit to the to the cause. So they look you in the eye as they go out. And that's I think that's discipline and contact and a relationship. I went to Barcelona years ago to watch a demonstration and it was taken by Rijkaard, the famous midfield player they had at the time, and he was a youth coach. And I went to watch this demonstration and before, before the demonstration, every player lined up and he shook them by hand, right? Every player there, you can't do that every class. You take them to German, but I mean, if it's if you're playing, you could you could consider it. But that at the end of the session, he shook them by hand before the session. At the end of the session, they all came and lined up and shook him by hand. Mm-hmm. There was a difference. Wait, you see the difference. He walked along them, shaking their hand. At the end of the game, he stood still, and they walked along him, shaking his hand and thanked him. In Spanish, they told me they were thanking them. You know, mm-hmm. now I thought that's that's a good routine to have. Mm-hmm. It maybe sounds over the top, but you wonder you, you couldn't do it every class, maybe. But why not? Mm-hmm. At least they don't get into your dressing room until they look you in the eye. Yeah, yeah. They don't they don't leave the dressing room unless you want them to. They don't go out in penny numbers. You know, they leave the dressing room when everybody's ready to go and they go out as a unit and. We things like that, you know, disciplinary things you have in your football team, you know, and I used to say to them, you run off at half time, you don't walk off, you run off. And they all ran up. I mean, if you watch the, watch any Scotland game, if you've got a recording, watch the World Cup in France, our whole team was in, we played Norway and Bordeaux, every one of the Scottish team was in the tunnel before the first player of Norway because they're told, run in. Now, uh, senior players, Professional players, millionaires, they want to know what you want them to do. <laughs> you know, and if you mm. want them to run in, they run in. Mm. If you want them to take a throw in a certain way, they do it. And they must do it. Or you're nailing them if they don't. You know, and uh, I could go on and on here, I get carried away. But, you know, I, I used to say to him, there's two throw-ins. One is to the player and one is for the player. If it's to the player, it's not to hit the grass. He's getting an instep. Because the grass is a variable. It can be wet, it can be bumpy. So you throw it, if it's to him, you throw it to him and he can control it in the instep. If it's for him, you throw it down past him and he runs on to it. That's different. So there's two different. And if you're throwing it down the line, if you're the right back, you're throwing it down the line, the last, hold, the last time you hold the ball is your right hand. And you're holding your right hand and you do that. And he knows it's going down there. Hold it the left hand, you do that, he knows. Yeah, it's going. Now, it's just a wee subtle thing, isn't it? Ah, it's, it's pretty basic, but the, I mean, the other clubs probably get to know it eventually, but still, your own players know where the throw's going. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, Anyway, I'm getting carried away here. Talking. No, no, that's brilliant. That's, that's brilliant. But, but I think but the difference or the similarity between coaching a football team and coaching a PE class is they're exactly the same. And, and, the, you're, and even if the team, the football team are millionaires, Mm-hmm. They want to know what to do. They yeah. want to know what you want. And, and, and you know, they used to say to me, it's hard to handle these big timers. 
you know, you're going to Mexico well at Ferguson. And in the dressing room, you've got Graham Souness, you've got Gordon Strachan, you've Alec McLeish, you've Wally Miller, you've all these big name guys. They'll, they'll be hard to handle. The very opposite. They're top players because they're easy to handle. And yeah. they want to know they what you want. Themselves. Right? They want to know what you want and they're desperate to please you. Mm-hmm. Now, even your, just the wee boy for the Clyde Football Club. And they're wanting, if you ask them to do something, they want to do it and they want to do it well. Uh, yeah, so, I, think, I think in schools as well, like it's like small, small routines, like what you were saying. Looking them in the eye, I think we've got a lot of power over how we, like what we expect for the kids. But it needs to come from the top, from like the head teacher, and we need to create that culture within the whole school. Yes. Like, whereas if I was just doing it, it would be, it wouldn't work. It would need to happen yeah. across every department. I think. Um, well, but, yeah, I think your head teacher should say, my head teacher, one or two, one of them, you've got to be at the door of the classroom. No kid goes mm-hmm. into that classroom unless they walk past you and look you in the eye. And mm-hmm. I would say the same to the PE teacher. They all have to go into the dressing room. Aye. Now, if you're a lazy rascal, you're in the, in the last cup of tea in the staff room, and they're all swinging for the dressing room lights. <laughs> you know, you get to walk in and come, hey, sit down now, we're ready to go. No, Too late, you've lost them, eh? You should be there first. You should see them all going in. I'd also see them out and... You know, get and they should be actually thanking you for the session. It really, I mean, you can't tell them to thank you, but mm-hmm. you can drop a hint to the yeah, class leader prefect. You know, uh, you get that, you get that the odd time, but you don't get uh, that much anymore, don't you? Not know? no, definitely not. But I think I think what you've got to have your own standards. You know, in your own uh, that's true, uh, definitely in your own department. Yeah, and your standards are that we. This is what we, the way we do it here. You have to look me in the eye, coming in and going out. Mm-hmm. and uh, a bit of respect mm-hmm. and you can't tell them to thank you for the lesson you know but some other, somebody else can you know yeah. one of your other departments said yeah, did you ever think of thanking the teacher for the lesson you had mm-hmm. now I saw Reichardt doing it in Barcelona now every club I've been with I've asked the youth team not the first team but I've asked the youth team to thank the coaches to finish now what happens is some of these youth players become first team players uh-huh. And they've got that regime. They've got that to set up that they automatically thank you. That's a good for the session. Yeah, have it. And yeah. it's only common courtesy. Mm. Yep. Right, so so moving on then, Craig, um, I'm quite interested in leadership and how how it can be uh, how we can use it as to achieve success and, and change. So could you maybe give an example of how you've achieved positive change as a coach? And like, what leadership styles, or like, or like, how did you bring your players, your club, and your fans on a, on a journey with you, whether it was uh, the national team or? Oh, there we go. Can you see? Can you see it? Yeah, I. Yeah. Well, that that's uh, the rival, uh, the leadership rival. I think well, that, that's that's Alec Ferguson. Now, there's another one out recently, and it's a brilliant book, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Quiet Leadership. And it's written by a brilliant manager, the Everton manager, Carlo Ancelotti. Ancelotti's book you can get. Yep. And I, I, I thought when I saw you, you might be talking about leadership. You know, and I picked out one or two books. Uh, he's a good leader. But yeah, these these guys that are good leaders uh, are not. Uh, that that was probably my that, that was my hero as a football manager. <laughs> well, <laughs> And you're right, you'll gather, I read all the books to try and improve my, my knowledge. And Clough's, Clough is brilliant. 
And that was Martin, uh, was that Martin Neal that murdered himself on him as well, didn't he? Yes, yes. Clough is brilliant. And I'll tell you who, he's, he's not doing so well yet. He's, your local man, Brian Rice, played for him. Did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here's the best bit of coaching I ever heard. It was, it was Clough. Brian Rice told me, we had a boy who played for the Scotland under-21s called uh, Terry Wilson. Played for Nottingham Forest. I went down to see him. Right. And he was a midfield player. And uh, I met him after the game because I'd agreed to meet him. I said, where were you supposed to be playing? She says, what do you mean? I was in midfield. I said, but where were you? The right midfield, the central or the left? He says, I don't know. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> You're playing for the best manager in England and you don't know where you were to be in that mid- middle of the park. I said, what were your instructions? Wait to hear this. This is fantastic coaching. My instructions, he said, Neil Webb, you know, Neil Webb was the star. Neil Webb goes where he wants. And I go where he isn't. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> when you amazing. think about it, Neil Webb got transferred to Manchester United. He was a big timer. Uh-huh. Now he says, I spend my game watches. If Webb goes forward, I go back. If Webb goes to the left, I go to the right. And, and he says, I fill in. And, and that's Clough. And, you know, Clough had brilliant things. Of course, Clough didn't like a square pass either. That's that a really simple way of doing it. It's just a simple way of explaining it, isn't it? Easy, right. under, easy to understand. You know your job, don't you? Uh, yeah, you do. Well, but, but uh, Clough had... You don't ever say a word to a referee. These were the, you, know, you read Clough's book. It's fantastic. Uh, uh, you, you never say, well done, ref, or that was rubbish, ref. You don't talk to... You, you, nothing said to a referee. And, of course, he's, he's the one with the throw-ins. Uh, it's to the player or for the player I'm trying to think some of the other things he had but they were great uh, and you uh, you compliment your colleagues you don't criticise your colleagues mm-hmm. you know you would have thought if there's any criticism I'll do the criticise you, you, you don't criticise a colleague because mm-hmm. that's bad for team morale you yeah. leave that to me I'll criticise and but close book's good I'm uh, what was, he, what was his thinking behind the don't speak to a referee then? What was that? What was he kind of it getting just, at? It's, uh, it's just a thing he had about the referee. He, want, he wanted Nottingham Forest and Derby County, the teams he managed to have the reputation of being easy for the referee and that there was to be no, and he said you'll Disputes get the benefit. or anything, right, okay. Yeah, yeah and, and obviously, it oh, just, right, it, right. he was a man of principle. I mean, right. you can say what you like, and, and it was, you don't, you don't compliment or criticise. The referee gets on with it without anything from you. Brilliant. You've, you've these are, these are easy wee things that you can control as well, aren't they? Correct. Yeah. Like it's just taking your, your job is to play the game and not to you think about the well. decisions. The decisions mm-hmm. will be made and you can't do anything about them. <laughs> yeah, made. exactly. Uh, Clough's brilliant. Uh, I think, anyway, as a manager. So what, would you say, so what would you say between all those people that you, like you'd taken from them or, or what's, what's one thing that makes them so successful? Those, well, those no, I, I, I'm not saying I was that successful, but I, what I take is a wee bit from everybody. I try to. Oh. Mm-hmm. You, know, the, you know, there's some things I like. I like the things about Clough, for example, about uh, you know, uh, saying no, no square passes. Mm-hmm. And, and I learned that from Brian Clough. And, and I think it's a brilliant. If I, if I didn't agree with it, I wouldn't be implementing it. I, yeah. I do it because I think it's... <laughs> if I did it because I think it was very good. You know, there, there are so many other things and I don't like my players to get involved with referees either. Uh-huh. Uh, but 
you know, I think the teaching job and the football managing job are so similar. Mm-hmm. The only difference is it's, it's easier to be the football manager than it should be because you pick them every mm-hmm. game and they want picked. And they know if they don't please you, they're more likely to get picked. And, there's, and it's, it's an ego thing. They want their pals to see them, their wife to see them, their father. They want the bonus. And if you're not in the team, you're not getting the bonus. So... Yeah. Do, you think, do you think that was the majority of the motivation then as a professional footballer? Or do you, do you, did you ever come across any players who you thought were just inherently motivated? Like, they didn't care about that, the ego side of it. They just worked super hard. And yes, a lot of them are. A lot of them are like that. You know, yeah. they're, 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 they're committed. Anyway, whatever job they would do, they would be like that. Now, mm-hmm. their job's football. And they're determined. And they're not worried about the money. They're not worried about their glory. Yeah. They're concerned about their own personal pride. How, how am I doing? Am I doing my job well? Yeah. And there's a, a good number of them like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, that people just assume because they're alleged to make so much money that they're all big-headed, they're all egocentric, they're arrogant. Now, mm-hmm. I find that some of the best players are the most humble guys. Yeah. And unassuming. And you would never know they were in the... Yeah. big time arena on the uh-huh. football pitch or in the big time money salary wise you yeah. only know that because they're humble and I respect that you know they, they didn't, they didn't that. oh sorry on you go sorry? I'm saying they didn't, they didn't get to that position without working hard regardless if you're a flashy professional or whatever like right. to be at that top top elite level that is sacrifice yeah. and hard work isn't yeah. it yeah but a lot of them well not a lot of them a not good number of these guys have get, great natural ability huh. you know uh, I'm not decrying them in any way because I love the guy uh, Gascoigne for example yeah Gascoigne I don't think he worked hard he didn't have oh, to fair work hard. Ah, right, okay got you no right. he was so talented but mm. that's the exception he is uh-huh. you know, he's a one-off uh, but he was such wonderful ability and you know I spoke uh, I spoke to quite a number of people that played with him and of course I've played against him and I uh, you know, a very nice guy. I sat with him at one or two dinners when I had the job at Scotland and he was player of the year. He was getting he sat beside me and he talked very intelligently and very humbly about uh, his ability of, uh, in football. But uh, he's, uh, uh, how can I put it? He's not going shouting for the rooftops how good he is. He's been quiet. And, aye, and he's, he's lucky he's got great talent. I don't think from what they tell me that he worked over hard at training or anything like that. Yeah. He just had the ability. I think Harry McCoy's were up to no good. Have <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, you got any McCoy stories, Craig? Me and Lewis are big Plenty. fans of, big fans I, I, of McCoy's. I could, do a whole, I could do a whole night in McCoy's stories. <laughs> I love that. Uh, do, do, do you do like uh, sportsman's dinner speech, speeches as well? I was asked to go to a dinner a Ranger Supporters Club and, and do tell them about McCoy's. If I started just now, you haven't, you haven't enough time. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell, tell me one then. Go for it. Like. Love it. Love it. Go for it. You want to? You want to hear? I something? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my, my first, my first, with my was in the Scotland Under Twenty One team, and we're playing Switzerland. And uh, you know, before the game, there's an anthem, even Under Twenty One. So they're all lined up for the anthem, and. Uh, they, they do the anthems and it's it's uh, their kickoff 
right? And I had this rule at the kickoff. If they get three passes before they're whacked, we're not doing our job. You've mm. got to get, you know, get a tackle in right away. Hit them hard. You know, you'll all get sent off in the first five minutes. So, why? So, McCoy's our striker. McCoy's and Gallagher are on the, and they know the rule. When the kickoff's taken, they're right in. So, it's their kickoff the next thing. I noticed before the, the game, the anthems, the Swiss came out with a gift for us. And they did a, a wee Perspex Swiss doll in a, in a, in a Perspex boat. And we're Scotland, what did we have for them? <laughs> we had nothing at So I said to the physio, go into that, see if you can find something like that in this room. We need 16 or something. So the wee physio, David Wiley, says, oh, crikey. No, it was very resourceful. They found these wee pennant, these wee uh, flags, SFA badge, pennants, you hang right. in your car mirror. Right. Mm-hmm. And he found he found enough of them. So he came out. So there was an exchange before the kickoff. So the exchange was over. And uh, so the kickoff is about to go. And McCoy starts walking along the halfway line towards me. And he's calling the boss boss. I says, Guys, defend the kickoff. Go and defend it. Boss boss. I says, boss boss. And he's nearly off the pitch. I said, What's wrong with you? I didn't get at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody told me, he said, A few since then. <laughs> that was the first time I met him. Then, uh, of course, he scored a wonderful goal in the Euro '96 against Switzerland, and he came and he jumped on me, and he gave me a hug outside the pitch. And of course, it was on the cameras and all that. They were taking photos of it. So the press uh, said to him afterwards, "Why did you run and jump on Brown after the game to hug him after the game?" He says, "I didn't run to hug him. I ran to ask him why I wasn't on for the start in the previous game." <laughs> <laughs> it was a game we had. Uh, well, did they absolutely hate getting benched? Sorry? Um, did they absolutely hate being benched, did they, McCoy? Like, well, didn't like, uh, well, he didn't like Graham Soonis, but uh, he was always on the bench. But uh, we played a game and we played the World Cup in France in 1998. And because France hadn't to qualify, the host country doesn't have to qualify, they were looking for a friendly. So oh, because uh, the phone around, the phone Scotland for a friendly. So I got asked, would you play France? And I said, yeah, in one condition, the players in one of the stadia that we're going to play when we go to the World Cup. Yeah, get practice. Uh, and the, the, so they agreed to play. We agreed to play them at St Etienne. So we get over to St Etienne. And I didn't know at that time that that team that we were playing that night in St Etienne was going to win the World Cup. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, was just, it was France. So, of course, I looked so at the So did they play a full team, eh? Fun. So did they play a full team? Did they play like Zidane and all that? that? I look at their names. See, they have to get friendlies to get practice. And I looked, and I'm doing the team meeting, and I said, Burley, I have a job for you. If number 10 crosses a halfway line in possession of that ball, and you don't fucking slack them, you'll be sitting on the bench with me. You'll, you'll be subbed. That's your job. You understand? Big boy for come up your eye. <laughs> yeah, three minutes play, well, what a tackle. From number 10. Zidane. I said, his name, is, his name, by the way, is Zidane. And you have to sort him out, right? So I whacked him. Now, Zidane went down in a heap. And he's lying there, and I thought, this is an order off. So the referee calls Burley over. And to our great delight, I, I always say to them, be polite when you're getting booked. It can mean the difference between a, a yellow and a red. Mm-hmm. So the referee says, you, the referee was Italian, he said, you were very late there, number eight. 
uh, Burley says, I got as early as I could. He said, <laughs> your name? And he said, Craig Burley. And he's looking at the number, number eight. So McCoy sees this, and I think he's going to get sent off. But he only gave a yellow. And that was a relief to us. So McCoy shouts on, hey, Burley, one more tackle like that, pal. You'll be joining your teeth in the dressing room. <laughs> so, so, so it's half it's half time and we're a doubt we're a goal down. So they start the second half. I says to Coisty, he was on the bench. I says, get warmed up. And you know, only Alan McCoist could say this to you, and you wouldn't take offence. You know, if a school pupil said it to you, it was a bit, it would be cheap. He says, I said, get warmed up, Coisty. He says, no, no, four time, <laughs> no before time. <laughs> So while he's warming up, Gordon Jury, the striker, scored the best goal I've seen Scotland score. What a goal it was. Look at your YouTube. Uh, France against Scotland and St Etienne. You'll see Burley and we were wearing the yellow top. And he got a terrific pass from Jackson. And they put it right in the roof of the net. So I'm taking him off. Now, if you're a manager or a coach... And your guy scored a goal. After he scored a goal, he's on a high. Mm-hmm. And the goal, the next time he shoots, the goal's twice the size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. he's, he, so I'm saying, wait a minute, this is silly to take him off. Uh, after So I'm saying this to myself. So McCoy comes up, think he's going on. I says, Coy said, we'll leave it just now. <laughs> I didn't say why. Just, we'll leave it meantime. And he looked and he shook his head. He says, Burley. One goal in six years, he says, prolific, <laughs> <fucking> prolific. <laughs> you see, only McCoy's could I could do a whole night in McCoy. We're playing Latvia and in the dressing room after the game. We played quite well and won the game. And he says to John Collins, Hey John. He says, There was a uh, twenty seven thousand eight hundred and forty three there. And me Collins says, What? He says it was twenty-seven thousand eight hundred and forty-three out there watching you. And he calls and says, "Wait a minute, the game's just finished, Ali. How do you know that was the, the, the crowd? That was the attendance." McCoy says, "How do I know? I was fucking counting them, waiting a pass from you, you greedy <laughs> 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 you know, He got he broke his leg in uh, where were we? Portugal, yeah. And Andy Roxwell, I was I was assistant. Andy says, "Would you go to the hospital with him?" I says, "Aye." So I'm in this ambulance, and we get to the hospital in Lisbon, and uh, the boy with the trolley comes out, and McCoy, he's got a, a morphine jag, so he's not feeling any pain, and you want to have seen the, the bone, the, uh, the bone's right through the shin guard, you know, it's, it's the worst you've ever seen, and and uh, the stockings doing it, I, I'm squeamish looking at it, and of course, but he's joking away because he didn't see it, and the boy squealed him, and he says, ah, oh, You've still got the number nine. You, you were playing. He says, yeah, I was playing. He says, uh, you'll be all right in this hospital, Mr. McCoy. And I says, oh, that's good. Why? He says, because we've got English-speaking doctors here. McCoy says, that's great. We've got none of them in Scotland. He's <laughs> <laughs> just so sharp, I mean, isn't I, I've, only, I've only just started. I told you, I could do a whole night in McCoy's ah, He's so funny, isn't he? No, they're, they're great. I love listening like him. On the like the Open Goal podcast and that, like I've listened to the episodes well. Like, on that, and he's, uh, he did he, he did me in brilliantly. He did he did he had a, a show McCoy and Macaulay. He invited right. me on it. Did he? And there was three there was three guests and you get fifteen minutes each. And I kept refusing them, but and then I felt sorry for him because he was struggling for guests. So I said, okay, I'll come on then. 
Was that a TV show? TV, aye. Aye. Who McCoyce and Macaulay, it was called. Right. Fred McCauley and Ali McCoyce brought on three guests every week. Right. So I said, who are the other guests, Ali? He says, uh, one's called Leslie Grantham. Well, I had no clue. He's at EastEnders, apparently. Uh, Dirty Den is his name in EastEnders. And, and he says, there's a wee bird on as well. And she's the star. You'll realise that. I says, oh, oh, obviously, if she's female, she'll be the star. He says, she's called Kylie Minogue. And I says, oh, all right, that'll do me. I'll be, I'll be there if you want me on that night. So he says, yes, come on. So you get 15 minutes each. Now, Kylie's the star. She'll be the last. They'll do Leslie Grantham first, Dirty Den, then you, then her. So we're in the Pavilion Theatre, I think it is. It's a theatre in Glasgow anyway, and they're filming us. So he gives me a big build-up, and, and then he says, and next on the stage, I would like to invite my friend and my manager, Mr. Craig Brown. So they're all clapping. So I walk down, and I'm up on the stage, and he's about to shake my hand. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. You keep me sitting on the bench long enough, just get back to your seat. <laughs> <laughs> he put me back to my seat. <laughs> and then he, then he brought out Kylie Minogue. <laughs> Obviously, we can get 15 minutes each. Well, Kylie get 22 minutes. You know, and I get the last five minutes of the show. Oh, man, <laughs> that's priceless. But that's him. Anyway, he's, he's a good lad. He couldn't he? I, I, I love McCoy's. And I dropped him. I didn't take him to the World Cup. And I made a mistake doing that. that, that was what was that, 98? Yes. Aye. He was in 96. He was in the year, but he, he had a lot of injuries in 98. And he, he was leaving Rangers. He'd gone to Kilmarnock. And he, I think he'd only played 11 games. And I thought, if I take McCoyst, it's an old Palzac. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll be saying to me, I only took him because you're a pally with him. So I, I left him out of the squad, which with hindsight, and I admitted it to him, uh, and I always they say any mistakes you've made. I says, I have plenty, but the biggest mistake probably was not taking McCoy's to France in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. I, only, I suppose even like just having him there as well as part of the like, morale as well. You've you, you hit the nail right in the head there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the backside of it. Nah, that was brilliant. Thanks for sharing these stories, Craig. They were absolutely excellent. So that would that would definitely make for good listening. Right, okay, that brings us on to our next question then, Craig. So, again, just touching on your, your, your career as a manager with Scotland. So, when you led Scotland to the Euros in the World Cup in the 90s, how did you ensure the team spirit was high when the, went in the camp? And how did you ensure nobody was getting carried away? Well, you've just hit the nail on the head, uh, Lewis, by saying that uh, I should just have taken my course anyway. Mm-hmm. Even although he wasn't uh, going to be in the, the starting team for yeah. his presence. Now, that would have helped to ensure. But I'm, I'm touching wood here and saying uh, I don't think we ever had a problem with morale in my mm-hmm. time. And one of the reasons was we were quite successful. You know, we, we, to qualify for the World Cup, no, well, first of all, to qualify for Euro 96, we played 10 games, mm-hmm. 10 qualifying games, and we lost three goals in oh. 10 games. Then to qualify for the World Cup in 98, uh, we had 10 games again. And again, we lost three goals. Now, that's exceptional. You know, I don't like to make it that's sound... Like, that's a good record, isn't it? That's, no, I don't want it to sound boastful, but what I'm giving is facts. And the facts are that we lost six games in 20... Six goals in 20 qualifying games. 
which was, and even when we got to the finals, we were playing big teams like Brazil, and and we didn't get a hammering there. We lost two one, you know. Now the one game that we did lose in in France was against Morocco. We lost more goals, or the same number of goals in one game as we lost in ten qualifying games. And, that was mm. and the the quirk about that game is this: that the stats given by FIFA after the game they tell you how many shots and goal, how much possession, how many corner. We had better stats than they had. And in 53 minutes, Burnley get sent off. So we played the last 37-plus stoppage time a man short. And we still had more of the ball. We still had more shots. We still had more corners. Uh, but we lost the game. So I'm, I'm fighting my corner here by saying that that was a freak uh, uh, result. Mm-hmm. So the fact that when the results are good and the players are in a happy in a, an environment which is successful, they're happy, you know, and they don't mind. You, I mean, the team is easy to pick when that when it's successful, and the guys who are not playing know that. Well, I've not any right to get a game because the yeah. team's winning. You know, if the team was losing, the, the 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 big problem in international football is this: you've got more on the bench than you've got in the pitch. Mm-hmm. Because you take 23 players to a tournament. You've 23. Now that means you've got 12 subs and you're 11 starting. Mm-hmm. Now that's a management problem. If mm-hmm. there was one, try to keep everybody happy. Uh, if you let it be, you know, and even small things like the number in their jersey, you know, some of them are superstitious. If you don't give them the number they want, they could be, they, were, they weren't, but I think only one player in my experience, I was at five tournaments with Scotland. Uh, and only once did I hear a player complain about his number. But you tried to you tried to accommodate. You knew that Paul Lambert wears 14 for Borussia Dortmund and for Celtic. So we'll give Paul Lambert 14, you know. Yeah. So, but there was other numbers. But the way we did it was those with most caps got their first pick for the numbers. So, you know, the guy with most caps, outfield player with most, was McLeish when I started. He'd, he ended with 77 caps. So what number do you want, Alec? You want number five or number six or four, four? So he gets his choice. And then you look at the next one. Who's the next number of caps? I think I think it was Christian Daly had 60-odd caps. What number do you want, Christian? And allow them, because you have to give the numbers quite early. Uh, and that, they're sensitive, some of them, about their number. If they've got a reasonable excuse or a superstition, you try to accommodate it. Particularly uh, mm-hmm. an experienced player, but uh, there are small. But I, I found the morale. You asked, I think the question you asked about how do you keep the uh, the morale going. And we always had a fun game in training. We always had great amusement because I would pick the teams, and I wouldn't tell them how I picked the team, and I would say how I picked these teams. You know, for an eight aside at the end of training. Uh, you could try it in, your, in, the, in, the, in the gym, but you couldn't use the same criteria as, as I used to use. They would look and they would say, well, and they're looking at the teams. I said, come on, how have I picked the teams today? And they would say, uh, the married men against the single. Uh, well done. Oh, right. <laughs> and then they would, look, they would look and say, the tall against the small. Yeah, good. The Anglos against the home squads. <laughs> you know, we used to be like an old firm squad to play the rest. You know, mm-hmm. so put them in the one team and they'll play the rest. Celtic Raiders will play the rest of you or the Anglos. Then I, I did one like uh, 
The good looking team will play the ugly team. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. And, I'm, going try, I'm going to try that tomorrow. That caused a lot of good, good nature banter, right? Mm-hmm. So we, I did this in the World Cup in Italy, and we can go back. There's a girl who comes to me in the car park at Glasgow Airport after the World Cup's over. And she comes, oh, are you Craig? And I said, yeah. She says, can I have a word with you? I said, certainly. Oh, nice looking lady. This is, and I'm saying, oh, I'll have a word with you. She says, why was my husband in the ugly team? <laughs> 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 I says, what's your name? She says, my name is Mary. I says, that doesn't help me. I need your surname. What's your, what's your surname? She says, McLeod. I say, you Murdo's wife? She says, yes, Murdo McLeod's my husband. And you put him in the ugly team? I says, yes, I put him in the ugly team. And I'll tell you why. Dyed hair, false teeth, ugly team. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think that merits it. Aye, but, but you know, you have a fun game at the end and you, you mix them up a wee bit and you change the teams every, every mm. training session. Then you have head tennis tournaments, which apply to you and your, aye, team, aye. And your PE class. Yep. You could play two a side uh, head tennis. I don't know how many boys you've got in your class, but you can have uh, maybe three or four courts and they're all side by side. And you play till I blow the whistle and at time up, the winning team goes up the league Aye. And the losing team goes down the league. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's the way up to the top pitches up there. And and, and it, it brings about a wee bit the edge in the training and the head tennis. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I did it in the school the PE class. You know, head tennis up and down the leagues and they loved it. You could actually do it with a tennis. You could do it with a shuttlecock. You know, you could mm-hmm. play it. Uh, and, and the winning team... Well, I, what I used to do was, when I say change, if you're winning, you go up to the next league, and if you're lost, you go down to the league below. And, of course, I looked to see what Tom Boyd, where Tom Boyd's league was, where he, where he was, and when he, how are you getting on in this? Whenever he was losing, I always say, time, change. I always just winding him up, putting down the leagues. So the other thing we did was to keep the morale. We went out for a meal at night, and sometimes when we were away, when we were away quite a lot, you know, we'd go to America to prepare for the championships. Yeah, we would go in groups of two or three, and maybe a member of staff would go, not as a chaperone, but just to integrate and mix them up. And we would go to the Indian wrestling, you'd go to the Chinese. Go, we had a guy, a player liaison officer, who was a character guy, Stuart McMillan, and he went round looking at the restaurants in the town we were in. Uh, we were in St. Remy in France, the World Cup. And he would have every restaurant identified and say, right, I booked for four years in that restaurant, I booked for five years there. And it's not to be the same. So they went out in wee groups like that and then they right. reported back in the evening. Or we all went to the one restaurant where we'd a wee sing song or something. But it, it, the time passed quite quickly when there's other games that you can look at in the telly at night as well. Uh, I genuinely didn't find any any, any trouble. You know, we, didn't, we didn't have any hassle. Uh, and it wasn't boring. I thought it would be quite boring, you know, maybe when I went to first. But when I went to Mexico with Alec Ferguson, the time just passed like that. Yeah. <laughs> Every day's training was... Yeah. And what about, like, keeping that? So obviously there's a buzz about the team and that going away over to a different country to, like, one of these tournaments. And how do you kind of keep that, like, get them to, without getting carried away? Or is it always completely 
professional and like they're proper tuned in. I don't see most of these guys are big players with their clubs because mm-hmm. they're an international team, and a lot of them are captains of their clubs. Yeah, but when they go with the Scottish team, these guys that are captains of their own team are on the bench. You know, now, they they can't get carried away. I mean, you know, I used to say to them if if I heard them talking kind of boastfully, I said, "Listen, would you shut up." We've seen you playing. Put them back in the place. I, I, you maybe you hear them in the shower saying how good they are. I said, listen, we've seen you. you know, shut up. We've seen you. We know, we know what you can do and what you can't do. But uh, I didn't find any. I found the morale, and I was really lucky with the squads I, I, I dealt with. The morale in the squad and the camaraderie was excellent. And that was the, the old firm players integrated exceptionally well you know when I started Willie Henderson was a young player with Jimmy Johnson mm-hmm. uh, Celtic and they were the best of pals you know yeah. and when I the team Paul McStay uh, was the star at Celtic when, when I was assistant with the Scottish team and then Barry Ferguson was coming into the Scotland team and you know they were good guys good pals both from the same kind of Lanarkshire of course that's the best place yeah. never mind your Cody. Absolutely, absolutely. I was going to ask you, see, see in terms of our job, we always need to like, listen to the kids and try and act in the best way for them. Um, so see, see when you're like, in the changing room or, or in the, the training ground, would you listen to the players, like, like, see if they want to speak about the training or speak about how they think the game should be played? How did, yes. you, get, like, how did you get the balance between saying what you want and then also listening to them? Because that's obviously quite a balance, isn't it? Aye, well, obviously, it's, uh, football management's autocratic. PE Aye. teaching's a bit autocratic too. But uh, I think you could, you could and should say to them, "How could we have done that better?" You know, Aye. have, a, have, a, have yeah. an informal meeting. Here's a very interesting thing Alec Ferguson used to do, which astonished me. I, I thought an Alec Ferguson meeting would be, uh, you know, when they talk about the hairdryer stuff. I've never heard them ever Lou, raise his voice. You know, he had, he had 10 games with Scotland and and I was there and, and he never once shouted at a player or raised his voice. He was very, very diplomatic but and, and also very uh, democratic, he would say. If we get a free kick on the edge of the box, uh, any of you get a good one at your football club that we could try? That's what he would say. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So Stevie Nichols says, we've got one at Liverpool. I'll flick it up. And Kevin Keegan volleys it over the wall. Oh, he says that's a good idea. And that was how it. We'll try that tomorrow in the training. You know, now, and what Alec used to like to do, you kind of do this in the school, usually anyway, he liked to have the meeting outdoors, sit in the grass, and make sure there's nothing behind him. He was a manager. Uh, You know, you wouldn't let him, he wouldn't sit with a a roader. on the beach or something behind them. Mm-hmm. Aye, there's something with no distractions. Aye, and, and so you would put the players looking at you, but you, your, your back would be to a wall or, or to a field where there's nothing they can be distracted by. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was very clever like that, that he positioned them. And, you know, you see, I, I often see managers at half-time or, or if it's a penalty sh- shootout, half-time at uh, extra time. Where do they position themselves in relation to the players? Now, if you if you stand and the players are looking at you, and your backs to the the crowd, the, the crowd are 
they're look, they can see the crowd, mm-hmm. you know, behind you. But you should actually make you should make your position so that if they're looking at the crowd, it's the crowd on the far side of the back part. Mm-hmm. I don't see any individual there. You know, I, I look at that with a bit of interest where the the manager has them look. Now, Alec Ferguson was brilliant at that. He would have a, a team meeting, and we would be saying it. We'd be to Dunblane Hydro or something, and there'd be a river running by, and uh, he would he would say, "There's nothing in that river. They can't can see anything except water there." So I'll sit with my back to the river, and they're looking at me. Mm-hmm. Whereas the roads the other way were maybe cars or people walking past. Mm-hmm. But he liked he liked to sit down and chat to them informally, which is not really the way you do with a school class, but. I think there's a time, I think there's a time in a place for it as well, though, isn't there? Like yeah. for, in, in the school. Another thing, another thing we talked about school teams and youth teams. Don't allow the parents to come up and listen to you at half time. You know, now if they're at the side of the pitch, I would take the drinks into the middle of the pitch. Yeah. And and dish them out in the middle, and the players come in now. A, a father or a mother's very unlikely. In fact, you just say, excuse me, would you, would you mind coming off the pitch? They're not, because listen to what you're saying to their, your team, and you criticise their boy, they're up in arms at you, you know. Yeah. And they I would walk into the middle. Uh, walk into the middle, or, or make sure that the kids are in a position that the parents can't hear what you're saying mm-hmm. to them, uh, and that put their backs to their, their, their parents. They're not looking past you at their father or their mother there, yeah. uh, at the side of the pitch. You know, simple things like that, I think, quite important. Yeah, positioning, and it'll save you save a lot of distractions and eyes looking past you. Put yourself where there's nothing behind you that they can see. Mm-hmm. Interest them anyway. There's great wee nuggets of information that you can just take in action on, aren't they? You can just that's things you can control. It's wee, wee things that just make the difference. Well, you, well, you can control where you where you deal with them at half time. You can. Mm-hmm. What was your? Well, I can't remember the question there. You were asking about. Oh no, that was that was I. That was I. That, that, thanks very much for just giving. That was such a really good insight into um, obviously taking the, the the team away for for the the, the World Cup and yeah, yeah. France and that. So, no, well, I'm going to give you. I'm going to get, ask you to you a question because mm-hmm. here's here's the question I'm going to ask you. One of the things you said to me: What is your biggest? Was it the biggest problem you had? The biggest challenge, uh, the last one, just before we move on to the quick fire round, was uh, what was your biggest challenge as a coach and how did you overcome it? Right, well, here you'll be surprised when I tell you my biggest challenge and I want your answers to it. Right. Seriously, this is serious. Uh, we're, we're in the World Cup in uh, France, so to prepare for it, we're going to America. Yep. We're going to New Jersey. So we don't have a charter flight, so we're flying. Uh, from uh, Gatwick we're to fly down Glasgow to Gatwick and then we're getting a flight from Gatwick over to New Jersey New York and beside New York and here's the biggest challenge I've ever had in football you'll laugh when you hear it but it's but it is a challenge the travel agent comes to me he says Craig what is it he says hey, I've a bad news I said what's the bad news he says we've only got 12 seats in the business class <laughs> See, we booked at business class. We've, right. only 12, we've only 12 seats in the business class. <laughs> so, you have your squad and there you go in the economy. Oh, and you had to deal with that. 
that's right. How do you deal? That, that is the hardest job I've had in football. So how do you deal? I how would... Do you, uh, you to, now, you have 23 players. Right. right. So you've got 12 going in the business class. You've got 11 players to put in the economy. I would number. I would just number them all and then get your assistant to have twelve numbers and note them down as they do. I would right. I would. I would, I would the numbers game. I would right. do the. So if you know who's going to be your starting eleven for the first game, they get business class because they need to. Well, you don't want to give the first. You don't want to give that away too early. That's a double. That's a double dinner. If you're not getting in the team and you're not getting in the business class. <laughs> Aye, that's true. That's one way to drop them in Ireland. <laughs> I said to I said this is not a job for the manager. I said to myself, this is a job for the captain. So I got the two key senior players. I got McAllister and Henry. Colin Henry, Gary McAllister. I says, come here, guys. I have a job for you. Split this squad, right? Of course, what I didn't think was this: that maybe if we had said to uh, eleven people who were in the business class who were in the economy you're going to business class and we could, we could all get into the economy so they're uh-huh. all together which was an idea belatedly but no they split the squad and any other ideas that you get? any but, other ideas how long was the, the only, flight the only idea I've got is put, put number get the number uh, yeah, I would say number do a live draw in front of them how, how long was the flight oh it's seven hours so I would say I would give them the option a three and a half hours each way. Right, <laughs> right, time, half time. <laughs> that's, that's amazing because that's that all good way suggestions. To... Both of these things that you've said, well, two of the suggestions the players gave. Because I asked the boys, tell me what the players said. So they said, how are we going to do it? Well, the first one was draw lots, but the name's the hat. Mm-hmm. Draw lots. The second was that once somebody says, we'll change halfway across. And somebody says, those that go business class or come back economy but we're all coming back business class that was good ah, right. so have you any other ideas uh, the players with the most caps what you said did I say that no you said that er- er- earlier on or something you mentioned something about the players that had the but, most caps to uh, about getting the numbers for, this, the uh, for the numbers in the jerseys that was it uh, well I didn't mean to say that either because that, no. was, that was the answer they came to oh was it the most, yeah that was the most you see that Good ideas were those with the longest legs, the biggest guys. So yeah. There's more space in, in the business Winner. class. Knees up to your chin. And, uh, aye. Well, that's what they said. Most the big centre halves. And they, but they had several suggestions, and eventually they ended up by saying that uh, those with most caps will go with the economy, the business class. So we're halfway. Well, we're just crossing over Ireland in the flight, and we had a team picture. A4 size and mm-hmm. a team photo and it says best wishes from the Scotland international team and the boys signed it in the back to give to kids and things like that they were the giveaway thing so I'm flying over there and this steward come up and like nice girl come up you Mr Brown I said yeah I have a message for you and she handed me a team picture and on the team picture there were stickers over half of them the ones that were in the economy <laughs> right and instead of saying best wishes from the Scotland international team, they'd written best wishes from half of the Scotland <laughs> international team. And, and the stickers, and, it, and it, I looked over, she said, you have to look at the back, and the back was a letter saying, dear coach, we 
the foot soldiers in economy have got tired, squashed bodies who will not be able to play even a friendly, never mind a World Cup. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. But uh, so that gave humour. So you can imagine the first practice match we had at the end of the training. You know what the teams were? Economy versus first class. Uh, well, I have never seen a dirtier game ever. Economy. <laughs> economy against the business class. Who, who won? Economy? Oh, I don't know. I think probably my team. My, my team would be the business class. I would. I would <laughs> and the question yeah. is, did you get the business we, class seat? I know I. We played. I will. Well, I've got. I have to admit to them all. The staff are all in business class because yeah. we're older men. Aye. You know. Yeah. Uh, but you know that was that was a hard. Now the, the next. That's that, a big decision to make. That was a big issue. But you know that my big seriously my biggest problem. Uh, Jim Layton. The goalkeeper has got a wonderful goalkeeping record. Jim Layton's got 91 caps for Scotland and he's got 45 clean sheets. Would you believe that? No. Half nearly. Half? If you believe, if you saw these stats, and I'm not making them up, if he was a goalkeeper of Germany or Italy or mm. England, they would think that was, pardon me, that was fabulous. So Jim Layton's got that number. So He's played in the qualification games, but at the end of that season, we were going to play in the, in the, the European Championship mm-hmm. down in England. Gorham had a season like none other. In fact, Tommy Burns said Gorham won the league, stopped us winning the league. Gorham won it himself for Rangers. So I'm saying to the goalie coach, Alan Hodgkinson, I said, oh, I think. He says, well, I, I would agree with you. He says, he says, Gorham, the ball's huge. You can't, you can't beat Gorham with a shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I says, well, I'll, I'll put Gorham in the goal. So that was the hardest thing I've had to do, really. Leighton's played the qualification games. He's got a fantastic goalkeeping record. And I have to tell him, and I remember telling him, this is interesting for you guys, school teachers. Mm-hmm. I said to him, hey, we were training at Stratford or Haven in England. We were down there and England were playing that afternoon in the opening game of the European Championship against Switzerland. And we were playing on the Monday against Holland. So on the Saturday after training, I, uh, I said to can I have a word with you to Jim Layton. He says, I certainly. And I always believe it's better to tell them at the football pitch, not in your room. And your room's too formal. Mm-hmm. You know, if you bring them into your room and say, oh, what's all this? But if you're just talk, walking off the pitch, Jim, I just something to say to you, to give you forewarning that uh, on uh, Monday's game, I'm starting with Andy, Gorham and Go. Uh, you'll be on the bench. Well, I, I thought a grown man was going to cry. You know, he, he took deep breaths. And I said, if you want to discuss it further, come and see me. But he said, this is a football decision. It's not nothing personal or anything like that. Well, he says, that me bombed? I says, yeah, you're bombed for the first game. But if there's an injury or if it's a poor game, you'll be in for the second game. And the second game was obviously it was against England. So the first game was it. Well, we played that first game uh, at uh, Villa Park and we drew nothing, nothing with uh, Holland. And then we're going to play England and obviously I kept going and goal. The morning of the England game, uh, Jim Layton came to me. He says, I just want to thank you. Would you believe this? I want to thank you. I says, thank me. Well, what are you thanking me for, Jim? He says, you told me I wasn't playing. 
on Saturday. He told mm. me in this, in this game against Holland that I wasn't getting a game. I said, that's right. He said, I want to thank you for giving me good advice early. It, it wasn't happy. It was, it was honest advice, but it wasn't making me happy. But it enabled me to phone my family and say, don't bother coming, I'm not playing. <laughs> and, and he says, but also, if I had been sitting on that bench and you just told me before the game, day of the game, the morning of it, my head was scrambled. I wouldn't have been in a fit state to uh, be on the bench even if I'd been asked, if I'd asked you one because I was so, so upset. Mm-hmm. He says, so thank you for, he's thanking me for giving me warning. Yeah. Now, Jim Layton's a good friend of mine so, still, but I mean, I hurt him badly by leaving him out. Yeah. I knew that. He was nearly in tears, but he then paid, paid off So the, the moral there is this, if it's an experienced player and you know you're going to leave him out, mm-hmm. tell him you're leaving him out. Don't make an excuse. Don't yeah. say to him, but uh, just say it's a value judgment. I've, I've judged that on this occasion, I think Gorham's going to be better for the team. Yeah. You don't say Gorham, Gorham's a better shortstopper, or Gorham's better at crossing, or Gorham's better at, at might go to better. You, you don't get involved. Mm-hmm. And that, that's my experience as a manager. Mm-hmm. When you're dropping a player, you don't have to give them, or you uh-huh. don't say, well, you're not as good at this, or you're not as good at that. You just say, I've made a decision. It might be wrong. But for your sake, I hope it's wrong. But for our sake, the team's sake, I hope I'm right. And I'm leaving you out. I don't don't tell them any more than you need to. That's correct. You're dead right. And and the corollary to that is true. That uh, the last thing you want when you're with your quad are sulking substitutes. And I always use that phrase. As if any of you guys want to be sulking substitutes, don't bother coming. Because we're not having a bench sitting there hoping we lose. We're a bench sitting there moaning that they're not starting. And yeah. if you're asking one, your attitude's got to be spot on. And I, I tell the story, I was doing a commentary in the European Championship. Scotland weren't in it. It was in France. It was in Belgium, Holland. I think it was year 2000, I think. And the opening game, I was working for the BBC, and the opening game was the host country, Belgium, were playing Italy. And I'm looking at the Gazzetta della Sport in the... In the Paper shop in the morning, the pink Italian paper. I can't read Italian, but I can see names of players. So the headline was Totti comes in, Del Piero out. And I thought, crikey, that's some change because Del Piero's a superstar and Totti's just a young guy starting his career. So I go to the game and I'm doing the commentary with the, the BBC from, from England mainly. And I couldn't believe it. I watched the bench. It's right below us. We play it seven minutes. And who scores? Totti. He scores for Italy. His opening game, his debut. Seven minutes, a big tournament. And he scored. And you know who the first guy out there, the dugout was jumping, punching there? Del Piero. Del Piero. Del Piero. Now, and I tell players that. I said, Del Piero, the hero in Italy. He got dropped. But when the guy that went in for him scored, he was so committed. Happy for him, I. He was up punching the air and saying, that is brilliant. That's what you want for your team. Uh, that's, the right, that's the right mindset, isn't it? Correct. Uh, you need that. You know, and if, if you've not got the, the attitude that you're supportive, if you're a substitute, and I hate to see, I watch very carefully. You know, another thing you can do with your school team, even kid them on, you can say, you don't go on until I get your pulse taken. So I used to say to the physio, 
take their pulse and it's true if it's not three quarters of his maximum he's not going and the players knew that so it affected their warm up you'd watch them warming up I, I watch Premier League games every week now you know I watch the team that Aberdeen's playing and I watch Aberdeen mm-hmm. but I watch to see the warm up if they're sent for a warm up some teams have got a very good organised structure others the players are just left and they, they just faff about they stop up at the back of the goal and watch the game mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah you see that they should, be getting, they should be getting ready oh I hate that they should be getting ready to play now you can teach your kids that at school if you're warming up mm-hmm. and then say to them I'm going to take your pulse just to make sure you and, and, and this kid you don't even need to count the pulse just say oh, I think you could be a wee bit warmer and have you by extra no, that that's it was good to hear. Yeah, that I didn't expect that as your your main challenge. That's for sure the one about the the business oh, class and the the economy. No, so it's, it's good to hear a bigger, that a bigger challenge, honestly, I'll be honest with you. A bigger challenge will say dropping. Yeah, dropping. I've dropped three big players in my time, and Leighton was one. Uh, and I left McCoist and McCall, the two Macs, out, out of the World Cup squad. And to do that was a hard job because yeah. I had to meet them. I met them at the same venue separately, you know, an hour in between them. And I told Ali McCoist he wasn't going to the World Cup. And then I told Stuart McCall. Now, both of these guys had played very well in the European Championship two years earlier. But it was mainly injury that was the reason, but I had to tell them. Now, that was one of the hardest things I've had to do, to say to two great guys, and they are great guys, these two, that you're not going, you're not in the squad. Mm-hmm. Now, with hindsight, I certainly would have uh, maybe considered taking them both, but I've certainly taken my choice. Uh, uh, hindsight, it's the easiest team to pick. Who was your back four when you kept, like, the, you only conceded three goals in each campaign? Who was the back four for the first Campaign. It was a back three. There you are. Was it a back three? <laughs> Calderwood, Henry and Boyd. Brilliant. Calderwood. Calderwood, Henry Who did he, who did he, who did, uh, Calderwood play for? And, pardon? Um, who did Calderwood? Tottenham. Tottenham. Was it? And the, the th- interesting thing, the three of them, he played for Tottenham, Calderwood. Colin Calderwood. Um, Calderwood. Henry played for the Blackburn, who won the championship in England. And Boyd played for Celtic. Right. He was at Chelsea, I think, just before that. He was down. He went from Mullow to Chelsea and back. Mullow to Celtic and then down to Chelsea. <clears throat> now, they were brilliant, these three. The goalkeeping was Gorham or Leighton. Mm-hmm. They were brilliant. And we had the boys, I never called them wing-backs. I just said uh, uh, full-backs with an attacking, uh, attacking intent and, and, and uh, a purposeful forward mentality. Burley on the right mm-hmm. and Daly, Christian Daly on the left or Josh yeah. McKinnon. So that, and, and but one of the main men in that, we played three five two. That was the kind of style, house style we used. One of the main men was the mid, central midfield player, and that was Lambert. So we had a back three and Lambert in front. Nobody could get away from Lambert, and he was brilliant. His interception, his reading of the game, and if they had to get beyond us, they had to get down the outside, and. Where we stopped at, you're playing against a 4 4 2. So, my two strikers had to defend against the full backs. And mm-hmm. we left there, we left their centre halves, whoever we played, leave their centre halves with the ball. If they've got a four at the back, yep. if the goalkeeper's got it, 
he's not allowed to release a fullback because mm. two seconds. Whenever you lose the ball, you go and you defend against the fullbacks. Yeah. So it, I mean, they did it. It was like clockwork. The, the organization and the way they responded. Um, so is that the same? Is that the same back three for the nineteen ninety eight as well? Uh, more or less. Yeah. I mean, there were mm. variations. One that came in in the World Cup in the second game and. and did well thereafter was David Weir. Yep. He came in. Now, the, when you, we had to change the team to a back four against Holland because Holland's, their house style was 3 4 3. Quite an interesting. They the always attack, played. Three, minded. Yeah, they played three up, but the three up was two wingers and a striker. But the main man was the central man in the midfield for Holland, and that was uh, Berkamp. And again, wow. either Lambert or McCall could sort that Bearcat, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. particularly Lambert. Uh, they had two flying wingers, Zend and, and, and uh, Overmars. Mm-hmm. They had to be marked by two fullbacks. So we put, when you play Holland, you have to play a four, or you're man for man and you'll get done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played four. We played four against them. Uh, and very successfully. Colin always found that Holland found it hard to score against Scotland, particularly because of Lambert's excellence at eliminating their best player. When they've got a player, a player, if a team's got a very good player like Bearcamp and he's nullified, it affects the rest of them. Their heads get out of you. When we yep. played Finland, they had Yari Lippmann in for Liverpool. So we marked Lippmann in and, and that nullified uh, Finland. It's almost like Celtic, Celtic as well. You see, when they nullify Edward, Celtic don't play. Exactly. Don't they not? When Edward plays Celtic, play. I was old fashioned. I uh, I always looked, if you're fighting the Indians, you kill the chief. So I looked, (laughs) who's the chief? Now, here's here's a a, a, a lucky, brilliant bit of information I got. And it was really, really lucky. We were playing Brazil in the opening game of the World Cup, and they had big Ronaldo, the striker. And everybody says he's the best player in the world and mm-hmm. he's wonderful and what have you. And I looked at the clubs they played for. And I knew Bobby Robson. He played for Barcelona with Bobby. And he played it even, he also played twice with Bobby. He played in uh, in uh, Holland with Bobby. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a manager over there. So I phoned Bobby Robson, whom I knew I had met him at games. He was a nice guy. And I said, We're playing Ronaldo. What do we do? Bobby, can you tell me? He says, you don't. I said, what do you mean? He says, he's the best player I have ever dealt with in my career. And he said, by, de- by far the best striker. He said, from standing start, he's electric. He just take off. I said, well, what do we do? He says, well, I, no, he says, I've had Lineker. I've had uh, Careca. I've had Romario in my team. None of them are in the hunt with Ronaldo. And he, he had the fear of death in me. He says, what you've got to do is, the only way is to stop the supply to him. Analyse the Brazilian games and see where he gets the ball. So I looked at nine. I went to see them twice before we played them. I looked at another seven, seven uh, videotapes, tapes of them, and, and analysed, counted where he got the passes. And nearly all these passes, would you believe, came from the same guy, Cafu, the right back. Cafu was digging balls up to the striker. And so what we did in the opening game of the World Cup, we marked Cafu. 
And I said to Christian Daly, I said, if Cafu passes two balls to Ronaldo, you're substituted. He could pass them up the side, he could put it anywhere else, but you've got to cut off the road, the, in, the ball infield to Ronaldo. So, and he's a very intelligent guy, Christian Daly. And so is David Weir. If you tell them it, I think once, they've got it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm keeping you going. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Did, well, that was did, did that work there that when yes. you told well, them? Well, to well, we lost the game, but it was a known goal. I would just say Ronaldo had his least effective game in the whole World Cup uh-huh. because he never got a pass. What was yeah. it? 2 0? Sorry? Was it 2 0? Was it sorry. The final whistle? Eh, the final score? Two, what was it? 2 1. They went 1 up, Scotland, it didn't they? It was a They were 1 up, then we got a penalty. Collins scored a penalty. So it was it was one each into the middle of the second half and they got a known goal that uh, Tommy Boyd hit his chest. Leighton saved that chest goal. But Ronaldo didn't do much mm-hmm. against us uh, and it was really because he didn't get the ball. Yeah. Uh, so if you stop the supply, it's a big help. I got a good way to look at Right, well, that um, brings us to the end of the, the main part of the podcast then, Craig. So for each right. podcast, we just have a wee quick fire round of three questions. So it's literally just three quick questions and just off the cuff, three quick answers for it, all right? So are you ready? You're asking me for a quick answer? That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Number one then, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere or in your hometown, what would it say on it? It would say three words. And really? I'll tell you where I got this idea. The, the the manager of Israel was Bobby Robson, Sir Bobby Robson's best pal. He's called Joe Mirmovich. And uh-huh. he had, a, he had a, a saying, you know how they say, you'll never walk alone and things like that. Mm-hmm. His saying was always the same three words. One goal more. One goal more. <laughs> oh, one more. Think of it now. Yeah. Now that just isn't the politest goal in football. You know, that can be your goal in your life. Yeah, yeah. Aye. I think it's a brilliant catchphrase. Uh, one goal more. Aye, you're never the finished product, uh, are you? It's kind of like mm-hmm. and, and of course, in football, it's, it's what you want. Every game, you want one goal more. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would. That's maybe my catchphrase. There's another one I really love, and it's. I think it. I'm sure it's an Alec Ferguson. The standards you set are the standards you get. Yeah, that's good. The standards you set are the standards. Whatever you want, you get. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, 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 when I read, to, you know, I heard that question, I thought, well, that you can have a, a quickie, you know, one goal more. I'm losing your, oh, I back, so I'm sorry. That's all right, we can still hear you anyway. You can hear me, well. Aye, aye, yeah. I don't know why it's plugged in here, but um, that one away, it must be a slow motion. Sorry, I have 10% left, so... Uh, would that do for that answer? I know, yeah. that's perfect, Craig. Brilliant. The standard, but, set, the standard you get, you could write that in the, billboard, in the poster or you could say one goal more. Brilliant. Love it. One goal more. Right, number two then. What books are people, I know you alluded to a couple of books earlier in the episode, but what books are people have had the greatest influence in your life? If you could even just pick, you might, struggle, you might struggle to pick one book and one person, so whoever. Uh, that's that's too difficult. One book, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I just told you the two, the Alec Ferguson's leading book, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Ancelotti's book called Quiet Leadership. But you know, there's a smashing book out recently, and it was written by uh, Judy Murray, Andy Murray's mother. All right. I'm, I'm something about oh, 
know the score, I think it's called, but, but I read it when uh, two Christmases ago I got it. And I'll tell you, it's marvellous. It's really it's a, it's a story of how she brought up the two boys and uh, how they became the uh, well, Wimbledon champion, uh, Andy. And uh, Jamie, the, the other lad too, did, did well. So yeah, her book's very good. Mm-hmm. And there's a recent one out. There's one that, very good for you as teachers. If you look at it, it's called Gold Dust. It's quite a, 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 a thin paperback, and it's Keith and David Meyer, M A Y E R, Gold Dust. Gold Dust, and I'm not it's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, full of uh, tips for coaching. Brilliant. The, 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 the guy coaches David, the son coaches in uh, America, mm-hmm. and his father Keith is down around about Liverpool, I think, with the, with the Robbie Fowler Academy. I think, but the book it was superb when I read it. Gold dust. Brilliant! Some some good books in there that you've you've listed yeah. for the for the listeners and for ourselves to take note of. Right then, final question for you, Craig. What advice would you give to a young football coach looking to work full time in professional football? The advice I would give them is to take advice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously. Hey, now the best advice I got that helped my career was was accidental advice, I'm sure. Uh, it was, uh, I had a B international team. I was the manager of the, the A international team. We had a B international against Wales and I needed a coach for the team. So uh, I was living in the air at the time and I was driving up to Glasgow and passing through Kilmarnock. Uh, Tommy Burns was the manager of Kilmarnock. And he's a smashing guy. And I said, I'm going to ask him if he'll take the B team. So I went into Rugby Park and he was delighted. He said, certainly I'll take the B team. Well, to cut the long story short, they played Wales uh, with the B team. And after it, I said to him, is there anybody I should put in my team? He said, yes, definitely. I said, oh, who's that? He says, you should put Don Hutchison in your team. I said, Tommy, he'll never get a game in our team. I said, our midfield's very strong. I said, we've got Collins, McAllister, Stuart McCall, Barry Ferguson. We've got great midfield players. Mm. He says, I'm not talking about midfield. I said, but he's a midfield player. He says, I know that, but I put him up front in the second half, and he was a revelation. Uh, as a I, was say, I was going to say that because I thought he was a striker. Well, he was never a striker until, uh, uh, until that day. Tommy Burns told me. And mm. So we had a friendly the next month against Germany in Germany. And... I took him in the squad. He was in the squad, of course, but I, I wasn't getting him a game at midfield, first choice. Yeah. So we're playing Germany in Bremen over there, and I put him up front. We beat Germany 1 nothing, and who scored the goal? Don Hutchison. Yeah. And the next month, we're playing England in the second leg of a playoff down at Wembley, and we beat England 1 nothing, and who scored the goal? Don Hutchison. <laughs> wow. so, so Don Hutchison, we, to beat. Germany away from home and England away from home and the same guy to score the only goal in both games makes well I would say makes the advice I got from uh, mm-hmm. Tommy Burns invoice. so you're saying what what should you do you should take advice yeah. listen to experienced people or people who have got knowledge yeah, and never be, too, never be too proud to say look can you help me what do you think and I said that to Tommy and he says proud Put Hutchison up front. And, I mean, to get a result like that away from home against two of the biggest countries in Europe and the same guy to score the winning goal was quite exceptional. So, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, how lucky could I be? No, no, that's uh, absolutely aye, brilliant that you've that you, you actually received that bit of advice and then how it paid off for you. But no, well, especially for you to take, to take it on board, you could have quite easily not taken that on board. So exactly. Well, I always think that you should you should ask for advice. You should ask for advice. You don't have to take it. That's mm-hmm. the thing. But and and the other thing that I found in football in particular, and I'm sure in teaching too, people are flattered to be asked. Yeah. I mean, you've that's asked me to come same on. Same with the podcast so, as well. That's right. You've asked me to come on here just now. Well, I'm flattered to be asked. I, I think it's a nice honour if somebody's wanting to ask you. And I might talk a lot of rubbish, but at least I'm given that. Uh, what knowledge I have and I'm giving it sincerely and I'm honoured and flattered that you've taken the time to be bothered with me so if there's one thing that you've learned like one goal more <laughs> that will help you yeah. Yeah, that's good there's more uh, than one thing that was brilliant honestly I absolutely loved it every bit uh, great chatting to you um, tonight Craig but no that um, rounds, rounds this episode off absolutely brilliantly loads of great right. information in there and a lot of wisdom right. as well so we're absolutely grateful that you came on and gave up your time tonight so well you're welcome, welcome. Ask you, I was going to ask you Craig what was the score against France like the one the friendly away from home I missed uh, that, well, missed that well it was 2-1 they beat us 2-1 in the friendly in the friendly it was, you'll see it in the, in the YouTube and if you look at that goal that Jury uh, scored it's fantastic. And McCoy's was warming up, but I put McCoy's on eventually. Yeah. But, but that team that beat us 2 1 in St. Etienne, that French team, they went on and won the World Cup. You know, we didn't think at the time they were. Amy Jacques was the coach, and he was getting a hard time from the press in France. But, uh, you know, the, to beat us wasn't a great achievement, but it, it was turned the corner for them. And they went on unbeaten after that. I uh, uh, took two under respectful result against the mm-hmm. World Cup team champions. Aye, but, but they had some team uh, that team, you know, you think Zidane's in the team, uh, Deshaun and these guys they were fantastic players. Legends. So, uh, high legends, all of uh-huh. them. Mm-hmm. Right, well, thanks for giving up your time tonight to join me about everything. We'll catch yeah. up again I, soon. I'm not at all, I've rambled a bit, but uh, no, thanks, no, hey, hey, you can give me a shout, I'll be happy to speak to you. From the both of us here at A Wee Bit of Everything, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week.